Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show on the Compete Network, powered by Clue, the podcast for product marketers and competitive professionals looking to give their companies a competitive advantage. I'm your host, Adam McQueen. You know what? Check that. In today's episode, I was not the host. In fact, producer Ben took the mic. So Ben, I think I think you've got to do the introduction here. Thank you, Adam. We had a very special guest on the podcast. Uh, his name is Professor John Horn. He's a professor of economics at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, former McKinsey. Uh, he's worked in consulting for over 20 years, and he's actually written a book. Uh, it's a book called Inside the Competitor's Mindset. Um, so I don't know, Adam, if there were a more perfect book to have uh, promote on the show, I don't think there is one. And it turns out, you know, as we got into talking, really the way that he has observed and, and visualizes and sort of understands competition and how to compete really is what we talk about here at Clue. So the synergy was great. Uh, he got into a little bit of everything, got into wargaming. We talked a little bit about just sort of that notion of, of how you should think of your competitors, some of the mistakes companies made, some of the more some of the, the good things that successful companies do. It was a great chat, really tight. I can't wait to get this one out in the world. Why should people listen? Something that I think we always try to do here at, uh, on the Competitive Enablement Show and in all our content is is, is we have to give credence to to the the tactical side and the strategic side. We have to look at things from the 30,000 foot view, but as well as get in the weeds, right? And that's that's a tough thing. We actually talk about that on the podcast, how that's not easy for for leaders to, to even have their feet in both camps. But a guy like, like Professor Horn, like John, who has the consulting experience, but is also a professor of economics, I don't, I can't think of a better person to do both. And so he really, if you want to talk strategic, you want to talk long-term, there's stuff for you uh, in this episode. If you want to talk about the nitty gritty and wargaming and how to do it, there's some stuff for that too. It's a really good episode, man. All right. Enough of me rambling. We've got a new host taking over full duty. So let's get right into it. So one of our favorite tropes, maybe least favorite tropes at Clue is when a company says, we don't have any competition. We don't have any competitors. Uh, we just focus on what we're doing. Um, I'm wondering, like, what's your interpretation of a thought like that? Usually when I see companies say they have no competition, it's because they don't understand the competition or because they've been surprised by the competition and they feel like it's something that they're never going to be able to understand. And so it's easier just to ignore it than to try to figure it out. Business leaders love to control things. It's sort of, you know, why we become business leaders and run organizations is because we have our own little domain that we control and competitors you don't control. That's part of the thing that's challenging about trying to understand them is you don't get to tell them what to do. And in particular, you can't even ask them what they're going to do to figure out how you should then behave in response. And I think a lot of time companies say, well, we don't have competition. It's a sort of a... It's a lulling themselves into this feeling that we must be better than them because if we're better than them, then they're not really competitors of ours. And it's sort of a sort of a way of tricking yourself into thinking uh, sort of an, like an overconfidence bias in a way. Um, but it's also, I think, just the fact that companies have a hard time and get confused by their competitors and feel they are irrational. It's something I've heard for 20 years and companies competitors aren't irrational. It's if you have a competitor that's large enough to be a company you're focused on, they didn't get there by chance. They didn't get there by making bad choices. They got there because they made good choices. And so they were doing something which was rational, something which was explained, something which was driven by the data that they were looking at. 
So when I hear companies say, oh, we don't have competition, I don't, no company has no competition. Every, even a monopolist, if you think about like a cable provider, they've got all kinds of competitors. And if you think about someone who is like even an electrical provider, you've got solar panels you can install. Everyone has an alternative that's something that they provide. And so when I hear companies say we don't have competitors, it's more, I think it's more the fact that I can control what's inside my own four walls. And so I'm going to focus on that because I can. And in particular, I so confused by what the competitors are doing. So it's easier just to ignore them because if they're not playing the game I'm playing, then they're not in my same sort of mindset. And I shouldn't have to worry about them. You know, you're making me think about a company I worked for in a past life, uh, a somewhat well-known uh, yoga wear retailer. Um, and <laughs> we never talked about the competition. You know, it was always just sort of unspoken. You know, we didn't talk about Nike. We didn't talk about Under Armour. And, you know, in some ways, there's like a tinge of wisdom to it in the sense when you say the word control, you know, there's there's some wisdom in saying, let's focus on what we can control. But yeah. what occurs to me in, in hearing you say it so well, I mean, it's really more of a platitude than anything, is it to say we don't have competitors, we don't have competition. Yeah, I was in a, um email chain online just a couple of days ago about the same question of, you know, why are should companies even focus on competitors? Shouldn't they just focus on satisfying customer value and providing ex excellent customer value? And that's how you can be successful. And it's true that you should be focusing on your customers and you should be providing value to them. But if you're not thinking about the value that competitors are providing, it's hard to then say why what we're providing is better. And if you're not thinking about what competitors are providing, it's hard to think about where are the blue oceans, so to speak, the, the white spaces that no one is providing and we can step into. So if, if you're thinking about the world as not having competitors and we're just going to focus on ourselves, you're missing the potential for opportunities because you're not thinking about what the competitors aren't doing. And in particular, I think it's really challenging because it blinds you into thinking that whatever you tell the customer is right. I, I did a workshop. It, it wasn't necessarily like a war game. It was a, just a competitive a strategy workshop for a company. And as part of the exercise, they had to go through and list all the things that they did that were, that were great in the industry. Like where were their, um, their key differentiators relative to why customers bought from them. And they listed quality and service and reliability and reputation and all these generic words that I, at the beginning, I'm upfront sort of like inside my brain going, uh, this is like bland and meaningless. And I'm sure every one of your competitors says the same thing. And I'm trying to think of how I say this kindly and nicely to them. <laughs> and as they all finish all their, this is what makes it so great. I say, well, that's a, that's a great list. And I've been writing on the whiteboard. I said, that's a great list. And before I could say anything else, the CEO of the division spoke up and said, can I say something? And I was like, uh, sure. Hoping that he wasn't going to say, that's a great list. We're going to go. He said, that is the blandest, most ordinary list I've ever heard. And I'm sure every single one of our competitors is saying the exact same thing to our customers. So how are we different? And the room was silent. And I said, you know, I was thinking the exact same thing. So <laughs> yeah, that's something to work on. I think when you're just ignoring competitors and saying, we're just going to focus on ourselves, you lull yourself into this feeling that whatever I tell you, the customer must be right. And yeah, you do want to focus on what's what's strong and what's good for you. But if you think about, oh, you know, our, our athletic gear is, you know, it's really comfortable to wear. You're like, well, that's what Under Armour says. And it's, you know, everyone loves it. Well, that's what Nike says. So if you're not thinking and paying attention to what others are saying, how are you really sure that you're actually providing differentiating value and the value that consumers want? That's right. That's where I think it's a, a mistake. 
Do you think, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about how you've seen competition evolve in your career. Do you think you would have found yourself in a room pretty similar to that one 20 years ago uh, compared to now? You know, like how has competition and sort of the sophistication of how you compete, how has that changed in, in your time? There are two big differences, I would say, in terms of competition. Um, one is even 20 years ago, globalization had, was still sort of just in the taking off phase. It hadn't quite reached its peak. And I think companies were still sort of trying to catch up and figure out what that meant. Globalization and pace of change have definitely increased. I think just technology changes in terms of software and hardware and computer technology that allows things to pick up the pace has made things faster. The way I, I tell my students about this is if you're in an, indust an industry where every year you come up with a new product and you only have two other competitors, then on average things change about every four months. But if you now are facing more companies from other regions, and you now have 12 different competitors because they're all over the world and they can compete wherever you are. You now have a change every month. And as that gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and as there are more people invading from other spaces, it gets just faster. And then if you change the pace from 12 months to six months, because you've increased the pace at which you can do things because of technology. Now, instead of once every a month, it's now once every two weeks. And that has changed. I, the other change is this focus on ecosystems and partnerships and collaborations. And I think that is a great way to think about how to create value. It's not a, I'm going to go off on my own and try to win the battle of business, so to speak. But I think that also is lulling people into a sense that there are no competitors anymore because we're in a big ecosystem. And so we're all working together. But if you're in an ecosystem and you're working together, you're working together to create value but you're still competing with those others to extract the value. No one's going to go and form a partnership. I'm not going to say, hey, Ben, let's partner up and we're going to go after this market. And then by the way, you get all the profits. No one's going to say that. You're not going to say that to me and I'm not going to say that to you. So you are always competing. You're competing with other ecosystems that are also trying to capture those customers. You're competing with other people who want to be the lead in the ecosystem for your part of the supply chain or your part of that partnership, there are always other people that are going to want to try to capture the resources that your firm or organization is trying to capture. So I don't think competition necessarily has changed fundamentally, but the two biggest ones are it's getting so fast that I think it leads back to your first question. Things are so fast, we can't keep up. Let's just ignore it and focus on what we can't control. And it's all about partnerships and ecosystems. And I can talk to them anyway. So, you know, what's the point? Why do I need to think about them as competitors? They're my partners. What makes some an organization uh, better suited to compete and like roll with the punches, for lack of a better word, than another? The biggest difference I've seen is commitment by leadership to actually doing this. Um, there are, in my observation, there are people who are really good at operations and people who love to think strategically. There are people who love to focus externally and love people who love to look internal to the organization. There are people who love to think long-term. There are people who are like, I want to get things done today. And that's just natural. That's just human beings have different preferences for how they like to think. And then within every organization, there's always this tension between people who have these different viewpoints of how they look at the market or how they look at themselves with the market, et cetera. And part of the challenge of being a senior leader is not going one way or the other and saying, well, we're just going to focus internally and ignore the other half. I mean, it's a, it's a, trite expression that's used all the time in strategy, you know, Sun Tzu's uh, quote that if you know yourself, but not the enemy, you'll, you know, win half the time. If you don't know yourself or the enemy, you're always going to lose. But if you know yourself and the enemy, you don't have to worry about going into battle. And there's wisdom in that, which is a, yes, you definitely have to understand yourself and focus internally and control the stuff you do. But if you don't pay out 
pay attention to what's going on, on the outside. It's it's like a roll of the dice almost. You have to be paying attention to the two. And it's not easy because people that are really good at looking internally aren't necessarily the best at looking externally. And part of leadership is how to create the I don't know, culture could be the right word or just the processes or the, the expectation or the this is the way we do things. The companies that do that well and actually force the, the, the rest of the company to say, no, it's easier to look at what we can control, but we're going to have to look at the stuff that we don't like that's uncertain or messy or confusing. Uh, and, and those are the companies that do it the best. I, I don't think competitive insight comes about on its own. It's something that has to be deliberate. And if it is deliberate, it can be very successful, but it rarely, if ever, is just something that just happens organically inside of a company. You mentioned processes there. I want to talk a little bit about operationalizing competitive intelligence and insights. Something that we we talk a lot about on the Competitive Enablement Show is is that balance between the strategic thinking and the tactical side of things. You know, we want to make sure that we're enabling our sellers in the moment to win those deals. But then also, there's a ton of value that can be provided through a competitive intelligence, competitive enablement platform for the strategic thinking. So it's, you know, like you said, it's not easy to figure out what that balance is. So I'm just wondering in your experience, uh, what have you seen work well when it comes to operationalizing competitive intelligence and insights? Yeah, it's it's a great challenge because fundamentally, it's not a one size fits all answer. It's fundamentally it comes down to how the organization works. There are organizations which are centralized and those that are decentralized. There are those that are customer or brand focused and those that are geog geographically focused. And my number one rule for how to do this well is to fit the organization. Don't fight the organization. So if you are a centralized organization, you should think about competitive insight being centrally run, centrally focused. If you're decentralized, don't have a, you have to talk to the corporate headquarters to do everything because everyone's going to say, well, that's not what we do. Like, it's just one more thing to do. And, you know, I'm sure listeners have gone run into that. Oh, it's one more form to fill out or it's one more thing I have to answer. Like why bother doing that? And I'm just going to ignore it and hopefully it goes away. It's a, it's a large problem when you're trying to institute new processes and, and, and ways of working. But I, I think the best way to approach it is sort of twofold. One is they're, they're the, the, the classic exercises like war games or black hat exercises where you are deliberately stepping out of your day-to-day -day role and simulating and seeing how the world could play out. I like to think of this as practice. There's been so much written about, you know, experts are have 10,000 hours of practice at, you know, hitting a golf ball or hitting a tennis ball or playing a certain uh, concerto on the piano. We don't get to practice business. There's no way of saying, oh, I'm going to practice market entry. And if it didn't work, that's okay. Let's just reset the whole world and we'll do it again. And once you do something in the real world, it's out there. But war games and these exercises allow you to practice. What if we lower our prices? What if we increase our prices? That was bad. All right, let's start over. And no one knows about it. So those exercises, A, they force you to actually have that external view and to think about it. And when I've run these exercises, so many people say, thank goodness I had the opportunity to step out of the day-to-day -day role and actually think bigger picture strategically. People like to do that, but aren't given the opportunity. But the second way of operationalizing it is this sort of policies and procedures. And that's where I, I like to think of it as being an entrepreneur inside the organization. So entrepreneurs are taught to come up with a, a minimum viable product, an MVP, and then roll it out and get feedback and improve and then roll it out, et cetera. So start with a small set of competitors and a small set of choices. And then you think about the smallest way. I know this is sound sort of weird, but smallest way to start extracting that information. 
asking the sales force of just like, which competitors did you talk about today? That's it. Every time you have a sales call, every t just on the CRM system, just list the competitors. That's it. Um, and once we start to see patterns of it's the same competitor coming up every single time, then I can go back and say, what did you talk about? Pricing, products, et cetera. And then I can start to get them habitualized of, okay, I'm going to have to talk about competitors and products. And that could also get them to start asking about it because I know I'm going to have to fill it out on the forum when I get back <laughs> into my office. But this idea of starting with something tangible, something small that you, in a way, you can control. It's not like we're going to try to understand every competitor and every decision and everything that we do. That's way too much. And it's going to get you distracted as the competitive insight group, and you're not going to be able to provide value. And so no one's going to find it useful. But if you have that entrepreneurship mentality of let's start small, let's start focused, let's win the right to grow bigger and win the right to go after, understand more competitors and more strategic processes, that to me is the best way of operationalizing it because it, it, it cements it and grows within the organization as opposed to here's this thing that we saw from outside and we're just going to attach it to the organization. Rarely does that ever work. We'll be right back after a word from the Compete Network. I'm Ryan Sorley, VP of Win Loss at Clue and founder of Double Check Research. And on season three of Blindspots, I'm sitting down with the executives, founders, and investors who make win loss an indispensable part of their go-to-market strategy. From executives like Vijay Gupta, the chief growth officer at Amplify, to the former CEO of Demandware, now Salesforce Commerce Cloud, Tom Ebling. We're going to deep dive into why they care about win loss and why you should too. Know your buyer, know your competition, and learn from leaders who know both better than anyone, all on season three of Blind Spots, powered by the Compete Network. All right, back to the show. I want to ask you a question about wargaming because um you know one thing that sellers often do is is role playing right um and and when you mentioned practice that's the first thing that came to mind was role playing and so yep. you know i appreciate that there's an intuitive sort of learning you have by walking through that process even if it's a fake one you know there's there's sort of a, an internalizing of those of those learnings but it strikes me that wargaming is 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 a bit more sophisticated you're trying to extract real detail from that to learn from. I, I was wondering if you could talk to me a bit about that process. It, it the thing I love about wargaming is it could be as detailed or as strategic as you need it to be. It it really comes down to what's the question you're wrestling with. I you know, I like to say like what's the thing that's keeping you up at night? to the leaders that want to do this. And it's like, it's this one competitor, they're always lowering their price, or it's this one market we just can't seem to gain traction in. Or every time we introduce a new product, the competitors come out with a copycat product. How do we do this better? Whatever those things that you're struggling with, simulate it. And if it's something where we got to figure out, should we be charging $4.99 or $4.49? Make the game where it's much more tactical and detailed like that. If it's literally, should we lower prices first or we should we wait for them to lower their prices and where? It can be more generalized and you can have, I mean, I've run games where it's like you plus or minus in terms of your outcome, not you gained 5% market share and you lost 3.2. It's plus and the other company got a plus plus. So they did better than you. Um, it, it really is about putting yourself in that situation so that the, when the real world comes about and when you have to make those choices in the real world, the first time we do something as human beings, we're just anxious. It's nervous. It's like, we're not sure what to do. But when you've done it before, I mean, this is why... Actors rehearse things not so that it's perfect. They rehearse things so that when they're on stage, something's going to go wrong. Something's going to go wrong. And if it's the first time they've had to read through those lines, they're like, 
deer in the headlights. But if you've done it like a hundred times in rehearsal, you're like, oh yeah, I know where to pick up. I know how to do this. You're just, you're relaxed. And it's true. I'm sure all the salespeople out there are like, yeah, every time I've had the, I, the same customer I go back to multiple times, it's easier every single time because you're familiar. The first time you go call on a customer or when the customer has changed who their you know, representative rep is, it's nervous. It's how's that going to work? That's really what simulations are about. Putting, giving yourself that opportunity to face it first in a risk-free, safe environment so that when you do it in the real world, it's not as risky and you feel more relaxed and therefore you'll, you'll perform better generally because you're not tense and anxious and want to get the heck out of the room because it's scary. Speaking of scary, speaking of what might be keeping uh, leaders up at night, uh, wanted to dive a little bit into how AI is going to affect the world of competitive intelligence and just competing in general. Um, yeah. You know, where it's something that you know we're talking about all the time at Clue. I mean, even this morning we had an all hands meeting, and I think half of the hour meeting was different presentations about AI. So um, you know, we're not scared of it. Our CEO is on top of it. <laughs> incidentally, for anyone listening here, um, but I want to know, you know, from your point of view. Um, what is the impact it's going to have? What are the limitations? What, what should we be using it for now? What can't it do just yet? And, and where, might we, yep. where might we be going? One of the interesting things, so the book just came out, but I had to turn over the final draft you know, last September. So before ChatGPT really exploded on the world. And since the book came out, that's one of the big questions I've been getting is like, well, is artificial intelligence going to replace understanding competitors? Won't the machines just do it for us? And my position on this is that it's a it's a prime example of artificial intelligence supported human decision making. So AI supporting human decision making, not AI doing the decision making for us. The reason I say that is AI is fantastic at collecting and categorizing and collating data so it's available for you when you want it. It's really good at pattern recognition. In fact, better than humans at finding little details of patterns that you see trends in all that big massive data. And that's great. If the competitor is going to continue the trend they've had in the past, AI will identify that. In most cases, those are things you will either explicitly know because you've seen that pattern or sort of intuitively know of, yeah, they always wait for us to drop their, our price first. Where you get surprised is where the competitor does something different or where the market shifts in a way that you're not expecting it to. Oftentimes because the competitor reacts to you in a way that you don't expect them. One, as part of the book, I, I asked um, 517 director levels and above, how often do your competitors act irrationally? And how often do they act? How often do they surprise you? Two separate questions. And for each one, there were 13 different strategic questions, strategic decisions where they could act irrationally or surprise you. And on average, the median response I gave, it was 25% bucket levels. So I didn't want to have it too granular. And the median response was 26 to 50% of the time competitors acted irrationally across all 13 of those categories. And if you flip it around 30 to 40% across those 13, 30 to 40% of respondents said they acted irrationally more than 50% 50 of the time, more than half the time, which just doesn't seem sensible. Like we were talking about at the beginning, like companies don't act irrationally half the time and then succeed. And when I asked about the surprising, I got about the same answer. It wasn't exactly the same. So it wasn't a one-to-one -one match across individuals. It wasn't like, well, whatever I answered irrational, I'm going to answer surprising. It was different. So, and we were on different pages. So there wasn't like they could just line them up and compare them. So I think part of what drives this sense of competitors being irrational or competitors surprising us is that I don't understand that they did something different. And AI is not quite good at that yet. If you look, most projections historically are messy and sloppy and up and down. And then the projection comes and it's just a straight line because that's what 
computers know how to do. That's what AI knows how to do. So to the extent that AI hasn't yet sort of learned how to incorporate uncertainty or um, changes into its algorithm for predicting the future, it's not going to be helpful for those situations where the world is going to change. For pattern recognition and for storing data so it's available when you need it, that's AI and dashboards are fantastic for that because there's no way a human could keep track of all that information themselves. But to predict where the where a competitor is going to go in the future, if they change path, AI is not there yet. And I'm I'm not quite sure there it's going to get there, at least for quite a while. The, the analogy I, I use is weather is, you know, a thousand years ago, we'd look outside and whatever the weather was, that's what we think it's going to be because that's the best we know. And then we started to pick, pick up patterns of, well, every three days it rains. And so we start to get a little more sophisticated. And now, like... You know, I live in St. Louis and we have lots of storms and now you get on the on the TV and they show you like the wind direction and the radar picking up debris in the air, which is different from rain in the air. So they know there actually was tornadic activity and they can pin. I mean, it's amazing, but still, what's the weather going to be like five days from now? It's a toss up. We don't know. So our, our models are getting better for weather and our models are getting better in terms of AI and predicting business outcomes. But we're still nowhere near being able to understand what a competitor is going to do three months from now. But giving a human the ability to say, well, what have they done and what have they, how have they acted in the past? We can then impose and say, yeah, I know they've always lowered their prices because they're reacting to this competitor over in China who's reacting to what the government is doing, who's reacting to what this is. And I sort of understand those patterns because I've been paying attention to those. And again, that's something that most AI systems are not good at is what's the sequence of events which led to the competitor doing it? Because when the competitor changes, say they lower their price every nine months and now it's every three months, you've got to go back and figure out what was that chain of events that led to it lowering its price and why did that chain speed up and therefore they're lowering their price three months now. I don't think AI is quite there yet in terms of it's like the weather. There are too many butterflies flapping, causing you know storms in another continent that we can't yet program in. Maybe we'll get there. You know, Maybe it's five years from now, 10 years, 15, I don't know. But, but that sort of historical tracking of what leads to what leads to what leads to what is not really something that AI that I've seen is really good at doing. Um, it'll keep getting better, but I think the humans are going to be much better at have, using dashboards and AI to provide them information in a synthesized way so they can make decisions that I absolutely think is, is where the future is going to keep going with AI. You know, we've, we've been talking a lot about clue and in the market about the competitive revenue gap you know, closing the competitive revenue gap is the concept of there are most deals are won or lost in the margins. Sometimes it just takes a little bit of a tip over the edge to make it work. And if you increase your win rate by just 1%, that can be, you know, hundreds of thousands, not millions of dollars in, in revenue. And I think what you're saying there really resonates with me because the answer for how to close your competitive revenue gap is better enablement, better competitive mm -hmm. enablement. And while you know we we're going to have you know best in class uh, intel collection we're going to scrape the web we're going to make it really easy for internal intel to be shared within clue um it's still going to take that curator we call them it's going to take that that person that human to put that information together and tip the deal so i think what you're saying there is really resonating with me and you know of course with any technology the caveat is it, it might get there one day um yeah. but i think what you're saying really makes sense that you can't really you can't replace the human just yet. Um, yes. And, you know, nor should we maybe, I don't know. I, th I, th I think the other thing where the 
enablement helps is that different salespeople have different ways in which they like to talk with customers and there are different things they like to focus on and there are different customers that care about different things. And when you have, like if AI says, here's the, or here's the script you have to give to the customer, that's not going to be as flexible and responsive as I understand how you like to think about making a purchase decision from me. Some, some customers may want to know about what's your in pipeline and, and how does that going to help me down the road, or may want to know about where, what are the partnerships you're forming or where are you going to help them to expand down the road, et cetera. And if you have uh, the dashboard, which has all that information about yourself and competitors, and then you can access it. So before dashboards came about, it was usually there was someone who sat at an office that had shelves and shelves and shelves of just paper and stacks of paper of analyst reports and earnings reports and 10Ks, et cetera. And when someone called up and said, hey, what do we know about this? We got a sales call or we're, you know, we're going up with this new competitor. They would get like a foot and a half tall stack of paper and say, here's what we know about them. Well, obviously that's not helpful. Where dashboards can help, it's can help to synthesize that information and create insights, which are not just the intelligence, the facts, but the what does this mean? And for different sales agents, it could be like, I want the dashboard to give me information about what competitors are doing in terms of product development. Someone else can say, I want to actually figure out what patents are because my my customers love talking about the scientific details. And someone else wants to know about what kind of new product development they have or what kind of partnerships they have, et cetera. And that having the dashboard allow you to be more flexible for what questions you want to answer is fantastic. The, I don't think AI is yet to the point where it can figure out this is the type of synthesis synthesis I need for each individual situation, but it can synthesize in a way that's so much easier to access. I, one of the things just real quick I did as part of the, the book was I interviewed other professionals who have the same problem. We can't talk to competitors, but we, we have to understand them through like third party and triangulating in. And I talked with archaeologists, paleontologists, NICU nurses, and a homicide detective, because they can't, you can't see a dinosaur, you can't interact with the dinosaur, you can't talk to the ancient civilization, you can't talk to the, you know, the preemie babies or the dead body. And one of the things the nurses, one of the nurses said is that technology has really helped us. Technology doesn't give us the answer. But before every preemie baby would have a, you know, three or four inch binder full of test results and daily, if not multiple times a day, tests that were done. It was just hard to flip through and find the right results and compare it. And now everything's in the, you know, an app and you can instantly see like how things have changed over time and compare it across different results. And it's so much easier to access the data. It doesn't tell the nurse what to do, but it helps the nurse do their job faster, quicker, and in a way which gives them the information they need when they want. And that to me is like the ideal analogy of what the dashboard should be. Don't tell me the answer, but give me the information and present it in a way so that I can, I can use it to actually create a better answer myself. John, I really, really appreciate you coming on and chatting with me. The book is called Inside the Competitor's Mindset. Uh, where can people find it and where can people reach out to you? Yeah. So the book is available at, at pretty much any, um, any bookstore, you know, online bookstores, uh, you know, your local, uh, bookseller. Um, there is, uh, a, a Chinese version that's either out or is going to be out. Um, and it's, uh, you know, so if you, I don't want to necessarily uh, plug any particular retailer, but whatever your favorite book uh, retailer, if you just look for inside inside the competitor's mindset, um, you'll find it. If someone wants to reach out to me, um, they can just search for my name, John Horn, H-O-R-N, and uh, Washington University um, 
in St. Louis, uh, and it'll pop up as my faculty page, and they can contact me that way. And we'll make sure to put a link in the, in the show in the show notes here, uh, link to great. the book, and then link to your profile. Like I said, John, really appreciate it. It was great meeting you, and uh, best of Likewise. luck with the book. Thank you, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk with you today. I, I really enjoyed it.